Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. For Book 10, Chapter 32, Pierre runs past men he had been talking to earlier, all of whom have been injured or killed. Do you think he should have stopped? And how do you think Pierre will be affected by his experiences today? I don't think he should have stopped. I think, um, I don't know, what should he have done? I don't really think you can do anything. You can't really do anything in that situation other than just kind of what presents itself immediately, you know? Like, it's just panic. It's just sheer panic. Um, I guess that's why there's so much remorse for survivors of these kinds of things and all the things they should have done. It's like, yeah, but I mean, come on. You know when someone says something to you and three hours later you're like, oh, I know exactly what I should have said then. That's just someone saying something. Imagine a war going on, people losing limbs, things blowing up, bombs whizzing over your head, people screaming this, people calling that, people grabbing you by the collar, and thinking that you're just going to know all the perfect things to do in response to all those. You don't even know what to say back to someone for three hours. (laughs) You know what I mean? So you can't... I don't think you can really uh, judge people by what they do in response to those life or death situations. Uh, Twisted Every Way says, I do wonder how Pierre will be affected by the battle he witnesses and the carnage and the aftermath. He seemed quite naive before all this and now he sees, now he has seen the up and close and dirty details and he didn't have to fight. Rybread Egg says, I don't think Pierre should have stopped. He's not a soldier, he's a noble. I think Pierre will have a realisation that war isn't some game or theory, but rather it is real and has consequences. I think he's definitely learning that. Um, Yeah, you're right, he's not a soldier. He is a noble. And yeah, what would he have done? These soldiers are being overrun by soldiers, and he's an unarmed noble. What's he going to do? What good could he possibly do? Let's see what happens next, hey? Chapter 33 goes like this. The chief action of the Battle of Borodino was fought within the several 7,000 feet between Borodino and Bagration's Fletcher's. Beyond that space, there was, on the one side, a demonstration made by the Russians with Uvarov's cavalry at midday, and on the other side, beyond Utitsa, Poniatowski's collision with Tuchkov, But these two were detached and feeble actions in comparison with what took place in the centre of the battlefield. On the field between Borodino and the Fletchers, beside the wood, the chief action of the day took place on an open space visible from both sides and was fought in the simplest and most artless way. The battle began on both sides with a cannonade from several hundred guns. Then, when the whole field was covered with smoke, two divisions, Campans and Desaixes, advanced from the French right, while Murat's troops advanced on Borodino from their left. From the Chevrodino redoubt, where Napoleon was standing, the Fletchers were two-thirds of a mile away, and it was more than a mile as the crow flies to Borodino, so that Napoleon could not see what was happening there, especially as the smoke mingling with the mist hid the whole locality. The soldiers of Desaix's division advancing against the Fletchers could only be seen till they had entered the hollow that lay between them and the Fletchers, As soon as they had descended into that hollow, the smoke of the guns and musketry on the Fletchers grew so dense that it covered the whole approach on that side of it. Through the smoke, glimpses could be caught of something black, probably men, and at times the glint of bayonets, but 
Whether they were moving or stationary, whether they were French or Russian, could not be discovered from the Shevardino Redoubt. The sun had risen brightly and its slanting rays struck straight into Napoleon's face as, shading his eyes with his hand, he looked at the Fletchers. The smoke spread out before them and at times it looked as if the smoke were moving, at times as if the troops moved. Sometimes shouts were heard through the firing but it was impossible to tell what was being done there. Napoleon, standing on the knoll, looked through a field glass and in its small circlet saw smoke and men, sometimes his own and sometimes Russians, but... When he looked again with the naked eye, he could not tell where what he had seen was. He descended the knoll and began walking up and down before it. Occasionally he stopped, listened to the firing, and gazed intently at the battlefield. But not only was it impossible to make out what was happening from where he was standing down below, or from the knoll above on which some of his generals had taken their stand, but even from the Fletchers themselves, in which by this time there were now Russian and now French soldiers, alternately, altogether, dead, wounded, alive, frightened or maddened. Even at those Fletchers themselves it was impossible to make out what was taking place for, uh, sorry, therefore, several hours and amid incessant cannon and musketry fire, now Russians were seen alone, now Frenchmen alone. Now infantry and now cavalry, they appeared, fired, fell, collided, not knowing what to do with one another, screamed and ran back again. From the battlefield, adjutants had, he had sent out, and orderlies from his marshals kept galloping up to Napoleon with reports of the progress of the action, but all these reports were false, both because it was impossible in the heat of battle to say what was happening at any given moment, and because many of the adjutants did not go to the actual place of conflict, but reported what they had heard from others, and also because while an adjutant was riding more than a mile to Napoleon, circumstances changed, and the news he brought was already becoming false. Thus an adjutant galloped up from Murat, with tidings that Borodino had been occupied, and the bridge over the Colocha was in the hands of the French. The adjutant asked whether Napoleon wished the troops to cross it. Napoleon gave orders that the troops should form up on their farther side and wait, but before that order was given, almost as soon, in fact, as the adjutant left Borodino, the bridge had been retaken by the Russians and burned in the very skirmish at which de Pierre had been present at the beginning of the battle. An adjutant galloped up from the Fletchers with a pale and frightened face and reported to Napoleon that their attack had been repulsed, compound wounded, and devout killed, yet at the very time the adjutant had been told that the French had been repulsed, the Fletchers had in fact been recaptured by the other French troops, and devout was alive and only slightly bruised. On the basis of these necessarily untrustworthy reports, Napoleon gave his orders which had either been executed before he gave them, or could not be and were not executed. The marshals and generals who were nearer to the field of battle but, like Napoleon, did not take part in the actual fighting and only occasionally went within musket range, made their own arrangements without asking Napoleon and issued orders where and in what direction to fire and where cavalry should gallop and infantry should run. But even their orders, like Napoleon's, were seldom carried out and then but partially. For the most part, things happened contrary to their orders. Soldiers ordered to advance, ran back on meeting grapeshot, soldiers ordered to remain where they were, suddenly seeing Russians unexpectedly before them, sometimes rushed back and sometimes forward, and the cavalry dashed without orders in pursuit of the flying Russians. In this way, two cavalry regiments galloped through the Semenovsk hollow, and as soon as they reached the top of the incline, turned round and galloped full speed back again. The infantry moved 
in the same way, sometimes running to quite other places than those they were ordered to go. All orders as to where and when to move the guns, when to send infantry to shoot or horsemen to ride down the infantry, the Russian infantry, all such orders were given by the officers on the spot nearest to the units concerned without asking either Ney, Deval or Murat, much less Napoleon. They did not fear getting into trouble for not fulfilling orders or for acting on their own initiative, for in battle what is at stake is what is dearest to man, his own life. And it sometimes seems that safety lies in running back, sometimes in running forwards, and these men, who were right in the heat of the battle, acted according to the mood of the moment. In reality, however, all these movements forward and backward did not improve or alter the position of the troops. All their rushing and galloping at one another did little harm. The harm of disablement and death was caused by the balls and bullets that flew over the fields on which these men were floundering about. As soon as they left the place where the balls and bullets were flying about, their superiors, located in the background, reformed them and brought them under discipline, and under the influence of that discipline led them back to the zone of fire, where, under the influence of fear of death, they lost their discipline and rushed about according to the chance promptings of the throng. Alrighty there. Even the French have lost control of the French. Uh, have your say about that chapter over on the subreddit. Thank you for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.